Welcome back to the Rob Skinner Podcast. My goal is to inspire you to live a no regrets life, make this life count, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. In today's episode, I'm going to read the first two chapters of my new book, Courage, How to Make This Life Count. Last year, I published my first book about how to plant and grow churches. This year, I wanted to talk to those who've been Christians for a while and who want to continue to grow for a lifetime. Jesus warned that the love of most will grow cold. One of our biggest challenges as we age spiritually is to keep our passion, our love and courage growing so that we can make the most of this life and be welcomed into the next life. I hope you enjoy this. Courage, how to make this life count. This is dedicated to my mom, Marcia Skinner. Your courage to start over in middle age changed my life. Preface. Many people of all spiritual backgrounds and denominations are living lives that are safe and small. Worry, fear, and desire for security dominate and choke out the opportunity to live an exciting and meaningful life. I'm writing this book to inspire you to kindle or recapture your idealism, passion, faith, and hope. My prayer is that by the end of this book, you will reject fear, procrastination, and the delusion of security and live a life of courageous action. I hope that each person who reads this book will look back on their life and say, I have no regrets. Sure, I've made plenty of mistakes, but the dreams I had when I was young, I got around to doing. My life was an adventure. Introduction, courage, the indispensable virtue. Without courage, all other virtues lose their meaning. Winston Churchill. Lenny Skutnik, a 29-year-old low-level government worker, stood with others and watched as the rescue helicopter dragged survivors to the riverbank. Skutnik was on his way home from work on January 13, 1982, when a Boeing 737 crashed into the Potomac River with 79 people on board. Only six people survived the initial crash. The survivors had escaped through the broken tail section and were clinging to the fuselage as chunks of broken ice floated past them. The pilot had not turned on the plane's de-icing system and had ignored the call to return to the gate for chemical de-icing. The jet only gained 200 feet elevation and 30 seconds in the air before smashing into a bridge and then the river. Only two miles from the White House, curious onlookers gathered on the riverbanks and bridge as a helicopter began dropping a life ring to the six survivors. One woman, Patricia Tirado, grabbed the life preserver but couldn't maintain her grip. She fell back into the freezing water. Realizing that the woman didn't have the strength to grab the rescue rope and was in danger of going under, Skutnik took off his coat and dove into the freezing river. He swam to the woman and pulled her to safety just as her head dipped under the surface. Skutnik, who claimed he quote-unquote wasn't a hero, received a call from President Reagan, who honored him at his State of the Union address two weeks after the crash. Now, Any individual spotlighted by a president in a State of the Union address is called a 
Skutnik. Lenny Skutnik chose to act rather than stand and watch events unfold in front of him. No one would have blamed him for standing in the crowd and waiting for rescue personnel to show up. Like Skutnik, we must choose how to respond to unexpected drama crashing into our lives. We can choose to remain frozen in fear, crying out, oh, ain't it a shame? However, we could also dive into action. Unfortunately, most people live their lives as spectators, watching from safety as life happens around them. We admire heroism and guts as long as it's observed remotely from our leather sectionals with built-in cup holders. We tear up when we read or hear of the sacrifice others make, but our life's narrative contains few stories worth relating to others. Jack Canfield, Canfield commented, The sad reality is that the average American watches television six hours a day. If you're one of these average folks, by the time you're 60 years old, you will have wasted 15 years of your life watching television. That's one-fourth of your life. Don't confuse admiring courage with living fearlessly. We can either applaud others living boldly, or we can choose to machete our path through the jungle of life. Paralysis in the face of needed action leads to the bitter fruit of regret. Researchers asked a group of the elderly what their top five regrets in life were. They answered, number one, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life of other life others expected of me. Number two, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Number three, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. Number four, I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. And number five, I wish I had let myself be happier. The respondents reveal that fear prevented them from doing and saying the things that they wanted to do or express. Gifted with the ability to imagine and create a future more to our liking, we have the opportunity to live a life of our choosing. You can live a life free of regret. First string living. When I watch NBA basketball with my family, I'll scan the bench for players I recognize. I wonder how those backup players feel, knowing that they may never enter the game. Each was the star in their elementary school, middle school, high school, and college years. Now they stare as vacantly as a six-year-old pit bull mix at a rescue shelter. With only 30 NBA teams with six to nine players who see meaningful play, there just aren't enough spots for talented athletes to display their talents. Unlike the NBA, there's plenty of room in the game of life for gifted people like you. All it takes is the courage to get off the bench and step onto the floor. My wife Pam and I spoke to members of larger churches in 2012 to gather a team to plant a new church in Tucson, Arizona. We told those interested that we could guarantee playing time if they chose to go. Everyone would quote-unquote start on the mission team. Even if they'd been passed over in their home church and were sitting in the back row of church, they would see meaningful minutes. 22 people chose to go on the team, and those quote-unquote bench players built a thriving church. Courage often precedes significant events in our lives. 
I want you to think about the memorable moments of your life. Maybe it's your engagement, your marriage, your conversion, if you're a Christian. Your first time driving on your own, the day you drove away to college. Remember the anxiety, the thrill, adrenaline, and second-guessing that preceded and accompanied it? You chose action in the face of fear. And now each one of those events resides in your life's greatest hits collection. Personal challenges in the area of courage. On a cold and rainy winter evening in Eugene, Oregon in the early 70s, my dad pushed our shopping cart through the electric door at Safeway. The manager of the store came up to our cart and asked if I would like to draw the winning ticket for the raffle that the store was holding. I shrunk down in the cart and whipped my Glen Campbell-inspired blonde hair back and forth. My dad pleaded, Come on, son, it's okay. With my face pointed down, I stared back up through my bangs and gave a firm shake. My dad apologized to the man, and he found someone else to draw the prize. I look, ba- I look back at that and see that little boy in the corduroy coat, the black gambler boots with rings on each side, and wonder, why does the event even merit remembering? And I think it's because it marks the first time among many to follow when I allowed fear to choose for me. It reveals an ingrained tendency toward fear that I'll spend the rest of my life overcoming. The circumstances and details may differ over time, but the things I regret in life are the ones when I chose not to act, when I shrunk back, and when I allowed fear to call the shots in my life. Symptoms of a courage deficiency. Recently, my older sister started getting easily winded on her daily three to five mile walks. Her heartbeat raced and then returned to normal. Even though my sister is slim, exercises daily, and doesn't drink or smoke, her doctor told her, you're just getting older. You'll need to live with it. There's nothing wrong with you. A year later, another doctor diagnosed her with terminal multiple myeloma a rare blood-borne cancer. The frustration my sister felt was not in the, in the diagnosis. It was knowing that there was something wrong, but not knowing what it was. How do you know when the cancer of cowardice is taking root in your heart and mind? You'll experience the following symptoms. You'll feel like your life has plateaued. Though you were once growing, now your life feels repetitive, boring, and dull. You might feel stuck in your job and career. You know you're operating well within your comfort zone. You fill your time. You fill your time with amusements that keep you from facing the fact that your life is stalled. You find yourself looking to your youth or earlier days for times when you're genuinely adventurous and inspired. There's a reason Jesus says, do not be afraid nearly 70 times in the New Testament. He understands how toxic fear is. No matter where you're at in your life, fearlessness is the solution and indispensable quality of living a no-regrets life. Gut check. If you knew you were going to die in the next 12 months, what, if anything, would you regret about your life? Courage to Change and Grow John Goddard was 15 years old in 1940 
when he wrote down a list of 127 goals he wanted to accomplish in his lifespan, from learning to type on a keyboard to climbing Mount Everest. When I was 15, he told Life magazine, all the adults I, I knew seemed to complain, oh, if only I'd done this or that when I was younger. They had, left, they had let life slip by them. I was sure that if I planned for it, I could have a life of excitement and fun and knowledge. Goddard achieved nearly all of his goals, although he failed to summit Mount Everest or land on the moon. That was goal number 21 and number 125. Toward the end of his life, he told reporters, it's silly to tippy-toe through life. When I first read about John Goddard and his list, I immediately pulled out a sheet of paper and listed all the things I wanted to accomplish in my life. As time went on, I saw a few items on my bucket list checked off, but I also noticed that some years nothing would be done on some of the most deep-seated dreams I had for my life. I was, quote-unquote, tippy-toeing through life. Kids, financial challenges, and worries about what people would think kept me from accomplishing things that mattered to me. I was hitting a plateau. Moses, as a younger man, stepped up to do something about the abuse and persecution his people were enduring. Exodus chapter 2, verse 11 through 15, recounts the following story. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard, heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Filled with youthful passion and idealism, Moses stood up courageously. However, the timing was not right, and God needed to work on Moses' character. Forty years passed, and God called Moses to finish what he had started. God refined Moses, allowing time, exile, and a shepherd's nomadic lifestyle to promote patience and humility. However, Moses not only lost his pride and arrogance, but he also seems to have lost the audacity, confidence, and gallantry that inspired his earlier efforts. Look how he responds to God's call from the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7 through 11. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the, the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Moses goes on to list his objections, fears, 
and reasons why he's not the man he once was. God patiently deals with each objection, offering a list of signs and wonders to bolster his bravery. Moses' negotiation with God culminates in Exodus chapter 4, verse 12 through 14. Now go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. Moses lays his cards on the table. He just doesn't want to go. He'd prefer the safety of shepherding sheep to shepherding God's people. He nearly traded the privilege of becoming the founder of the Israelite nation for becoming a footnote in Israel's history. Moses almost rejected God's mission for his life for the the quote-unquote shadow mission. John Ortberg describes the shadow mission as a substitute for our primary purpose in life. It's not necessarily evil, sinful, or wrong. However, it absorbs and diverts our attention away from the fields of the most abundant harvest in our lives. It shackles us to something second best. It is often safe, secure, and rewards us with immediate positive feedback at the cost of long-term eternal impact. Here are some common shadow missions. Video games, binging TV shows, beer brewing, wine tasting, being a foodie, day trading, multi-level marketing schemes, hunting, fishing, social media, pornography. One person I talked to in the church I lead estimated that he had devoted two full years of his 22 years to playing World of Warcraft. I found myself living for a shadow mission in my mid-40s. I'd planted a church in my hometown of Ashland, Oregon. For 15 years, I'd worked as a professional minister and missionary. Unlike my prior positions in church startups, I planted this church unsupported. I tested for my real estate license and started selling houses under the guidance of my sister. Two years later, the bottom fell out of the real estate market, and I wondered how I was going to make it financially. I cashed out my retirement plan, sold off my nearly new Chevy Suburban for about half of what I paid for it, and with the support of my in-laws, survived the Great Recession. By January of 2012, I started to see a glimmer on the horizon. Housing sales were increasing slightly, and I could see an end to five years of financial struggle. At the same time, the church I started, started in my living room was now too large for our rented church building. I saw a fork in the road up ahead. I could continue in real estate and hire a minister to take over the church, or I could return to paid ministry and do that full-time. The pace of my day job in sales, along with my night and weekend job of church leadership while leading a family, was wearing me out. That month, I got a voicemail from the leader of a large church in Los Angeles. He asked me if I'd be interested in planting a new church in Tucson, Arizona. He promised that churches in California and Arizona would provide a full-time salary and five years of support. I waited a week before calling him back and telling him no. A month later, he called again and asked if he could fly me down at his expense to Tucson and talk over the opportunity. I landed in Phoenix and drove with him and some other ministers to Tucson Sentinel Peak. Sentinel Peak, or 
A mountain overlooks the Tucson skyline. Having just flown in from the Rogue Valley in Oregon, which looks a lot like Tuscany, Italy, I had a hard time getting inspired by the brown, flat, midwinter barrenness of Tucson. I told him no a second time and flew home. During those two months, I was going through an internal upheaval. I knew that my situation in Oregon was unsustainable. I knew that I loved doing the work of ministry and had a master's degree in biblical studies. I knew that church planting had been my joy and work since we planted our first church in Portland, Oregon in 1991. I also knew that if I left my sales job, I'd be letting go of a lot of future income. I had to fast, pray, and dig around deep inside to figure out what is my primary mission in life. Is it ministry, missions, and church planting? Or is it real estate sales? What had started as a tool to support my ministry had become, had become something far more important to me. I was wrestling with the shadow mission. What confused me is that my sales career was not ostensibly wrong or destructive. In fact, in many ways, it was fun and gratifying. But it wasn't my primary mission in life. It was second best behind my vocation of working as a minister full-time. Are you living for your primary mission or a shadow mission? Have you settled for a second best lifestyle that keeps you preoccupied? Like Moses, can you look back into your past for times when you're acting on your deepest values and core convictions? Now's the time to make a course correction. God had chosen Moses to shepherd his people to the promised land. He was designed by God to be the lawgiver nation builder, and prophet for his people. As long as he clung to his shadow mission as a desert shepherd, he would forfeit the role God had scripted for him. After fasting and praying and debunking all the rationalizations that I had made, I said yes to the invitation to plant a new church. It felt right. I could use 100% of my time and talents pursuing my primary calling. God blessed the decision and the small mission team grew to 100 members in two years. The church I left continues to flourish under full-time leadership, choosing what is best over what is familiar. It takes backbone to reject the shadow mission for our real purpose. You have to see through all of the lies, self-deceiving, and self-serving excuses we make to hold on to what is familiar. We naturally gravitate toward what is familiar even when we know it's not what is best for us. For example, if you're a woman who grew up with an alcoholic father, you will tend to be attracted to men who are alcoholics. Not because you find them attractive, but because you find their behavior familiar. Even when someone's behavior or personality is hurtful, on a subconscious level, some part of us finds comfort in the familiarity of that behavior. Familiar people, habits, and environment tether us to the shadow mission. You will have to let go of what is comfortable for what is unfamiliar and yet better. You're always left with a choice to follow your calling. Reconnect with your primary mission. When have you been the most alive? What events from your past reveal your true vocation? What led you away from that? Identify the shadow mission 
that's currently co-opting your time, attention, and energy. Is it worth it? If you pursue it for the next 20 years, are you going to be satisfied with the fruit of that pursuit? Reject the shadow mission. The only way to live a life of no regrets is to make a hard break with your shadow mission. You will have to shake up your familiar routine and replace it with a more effective way of living. Stop making excuses and trust that there is something better and more satisfying for you. Recapture your calling. You can choose to settle for second best for the rest of your life, or you can decide to follow the path God created for you. As the TV and movie movie series says, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to dot, dot, dot. Only you determine whether you accept or reject God's calling. I want you to imagine that you are Neo, sitting across from Morpheus from the movie Matrix. And he opens his palm to two pills, the red pill and the blue pill. Take the red pill and you find out why God really puts you into this world. Swallow the blue pill and you slip back into the comfortable routine you've habituated yourself to. The red pill leads you down to sacrifice and significance. The blue pill to boredom and blissful ignorance of God's highest vision for your life. You decide. Gut check. What is your primary mission? What is your shadow mission? And which one are you currently living for? Number two, take a few minutes and write out your own Goddard list. Thank you for listening today to my second book, Courage, How to Make This Life Count. If you're interested in reading more, you can find this book on Amazon along with my first book, How to Plant and Grow a Church, a Complete Manual for Small Church Growth. I want to thank you today for listening to the Rob Skinner Podcast. My goal is to inspire you to make this life count, live a no-regrets life, and to multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. If you enjoyed the program today, I'd like to ask you to share and subscribe to this podcast. Please let your friends know. Have a great day and make this life count.